to uh, Catherine Clinton, uh, a.k.a. C.C. Colbert, uh, for the first second book, Booth. So just so people have a context, what we're discussing, the, the book about uh, the infamous John Wilkes Booth, um, yourself as a historian, uh, kind of creating a fictional telling of his life, or pseudo-fictional, or completely non-fictional. Well, I took some of the facts known facts of his life and wove in some imagination and he was full of contradictions and left us a tantalizing trail after his death so I thought it would be interesting to try to highlight some of the more exaggerated and dramatic elements of his life and then to fill it in with a bit of imagination <laughs> um you were saying just a second ago about the role of Canada. I'd, I'm a history major, but American history was never, probably wasn't ever actually my focus very much, more the, the countries that America affected with colonialism. Uh, so it's interesting to hear about the connection with Montreal. Um, right. And the Ontario. And Ontario? Mm-hmm. It's where Harriet Tubman actually moved uh, with her family during the period after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. So John Brown went up recruiting in the region, and it's uh, an interesting era where a decade later, following the defeat of the Confederacy, the surrender of the rebels, you have Canadians welcoming Confederates who came in exile, Mm -hmm. many who'd had clandestine networks in Canada during the Civil War. There was a lot of smuggling that went on. Um. It and within Canada, that was also around the time we had our uh, slightly less uh, tumultuous uh, independence. It was 1867. Um, when right. we had our so there were rumblings on both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one from what I remember from some of my courses, one the the concerns was uh, creating, you know, a nation uh, of itself. In, within Canada, um, because of concerns of American uh, encroachment, because they have been going to the Pacific, they've won in the South or regained the South, um, however you want to put it, and you know the North is just uh, a stone's throw away. 
Well, I live in Belfast now, so there's <laughs> a lot of divided, divided issues going on, um, and many border issues going on. So I think maybe that also prompts me to keep up my interest in these quirky and dramatic and very divided times. I was really curious about that, about being in Belfast um, and doing a book about the Civil War. Like, is there a lot of paradoxes within that of the two? Or Well, when I came to um, Queen's University to teach the very first month I was here, the troops were withdrawn from Northern Ireland officially. So the withdrawing of the troops was something that I'd always studied in U.S. history in the period known as Reconstruction. So I found it quite interesting to see historic times, the unfolding of events in real time in my own life. Um, I came as an historian, but I came as an outsider, and I could observe and see the drama. So one of the things is we're on the eve of the sesquicentennial of the American Civil War, the 150th anniversary. So thinking about parallel times and how we look back on one war and look to a future of peace in this culture, and it just seemed like the right time to re-explore someone like Booth, who came from a divided family and lived a very heightened political experience. Does your experience in Belfast change somewhat your understanding of the events of the Civil War, just seeing that first-hand dynamic? It it does make me think about um, the fact that we do have ideological divides, but we're all real human beings confronting conflicted feelings. So maybe that's it, to see the real human dementia of a divide. That that's that's something that interests me. Um, does John Wilkes Booth uh, create, I guess, a humanizing factor, or or your work creating him as a humanized character? Well, most of my early work focused on slavery, and I see the Civil War as a war of liberation in many ways, mm-hmm. which is something that came out of my experience studying it in the 1960s with some of the historiographical trends in the United States at that time, which was a kind of outlaw way of looking at the Civil War. At the same time, I um, very much benefited from my work with James M. McPherson, who's a leading scholar of the U.S. Civil War. And so trying to look at the fact that instead of having winners and losers, Uh, demons and angels try and look at the way in which the war unfolded and shifted. At the same time, to have a 26-year-old who assassinated the president after the end of the war in some ways changed the course the nation was going in seemed really a melodramatic episode that I wanted to try to put into the graphic novel format because I think it's such an exciting new way of storytelling. I was quite surprised. I didn't realize he was that young. Exactly. You know, it's like... Yeah. Several of the interviewers have told me, who do you want to play um, Booth, for example, in the film? And I'm uh, really struck by the 
Johnny Depp contingent. But in reality, Johnny Depp is too old to play Pooh, <laughs> and he's more of a Robert Pattinson. Uh, but people, nevertheless, all have their favorites. But I think his youth is something that is forgotten. His impetuosity. Well, it creates like a different identity of the person. Like you, you do your th- the things in your youth that you wouldn't do as an adult. I guess is one way of putting it. Right. Uh, you know, when you grow up, maybe you wouldn't assassinate <laughs> a president. But I don't really think that's that's. Uh, you know, there is, of course, always with the tagline on the cover: uh, actor, lover, idealist, assassin the kind of tagline that he himself would have liked, because I think in many ways Booth treated his life like a script and a drama. Mm -hmm. And there were plays within plays, and many of them only unfolded after his death, when people began to uncover the bits and pieces that he had scattered. He, of course, assassinated the president and then kept a diary. And many of his diary entries appear um, verbatim in my book so that I'm able to use pieces of evidence, actual words, interwoven with the imagined conversations. It's not often you have such a uh, fruitful primary source no. as that. One that you can actually think about. We always talk about the divided houses of the Civil War. Brothers turn against brothers. Mm -hmm. And here with the Booth brothers, you have a real divided family with not just symbolic, but actual divides that we have evidence about their conflicts. And also, ironically, their relationship to Lincoln and his politics. I didn't. Yeah, I was really surprised about the uh, how close a connection they had to the politics within Washington itself, or the I, the folks. I think if you think about all the World War II movies and the way in which, in in which you know, a place like Casablanca or um, in Portugal, you have Lisbon as a city of conflict and clandestine divides during that era. I wanted people to imagine Washington, D.C. as being just the same kind of place on the border where people could slip in and out, where you had Confederate sympathizers and spies, and you also had a Union military and guards and brothels and saloons and parlors and the White House. Really, it's a very large canvas, and I think one that would be attractive, especially when it's drawn by my uh, collaborator, Tanny Talk, who did such a marvelous, evocative job with his drawings. It, it sounds uh, quite like, say, 1950s Berlin. Right. <laughs> the Alan Moore, right. the 
Tell me about Tenny Talk, uh, the collaborator in this. You, you, you mentioned that your sons have been reaching, have been reading BD, some bad oh, Disney. Oh yeah, my my, I I did think that during um, my two boys' high school years that um, that maybe <laughs> I should give up on manga and save tuition because they were really quite voracious readers. But I saw something that it was both the storytelling. And the the visual power of the story, the connection between word and image, and if you can find that um, in a collaboration, I think you're very lucky. And I was um, not thinking about myself, but I was thinking about how, as an educator, 
trying to get these exciting stories across. Very luckily, one of my earliest editors, uh, who's now a publisher at Hill and Wang, uh, a gentleman named Thomas Labine, put me in touch with Mark Siegel, who was at that time trying to put together a stable of people committed to his vision, and Mm -hmm. this was for a second. And I was very lucky that he put me in touch with Tenny Talk and convinced me that I should really experiment in this brave new world of graphic novels. Because, of course, I'd written uh, a couple dozen other books (laughs) in the... um, children's book market so I had done some collaboration with artists um, but I was uh, much more concerned about the word and as a writer you're very concerned about the exactness of your words but as time goes on you really do see that the power of the story is what we should be concerned about and if we can get it across with a, a powerful visual collaborator we're very lucky and his vision was so remarkable because it was very intuitive and emotive. Um, he wasn't that familiar with the particulars of U.S. history. That was my job. But he was interested in getting mood across and getting the the adventure and the drama. And, of course, I, I have to say I was affected by um, my own historic events, actually the the use of torture during wartime was Mm -hmm. something that was being debated in American society when I was working on this. And so the fact that there were tortures used during the Civil War, I use one which is simply a a spy's torture to to get the truth out of someone. Um, But nevertheless, I wanted to have people think about it as a part of wartime, a part of war's brutality. I have uh, a professor here at UBC who uh, is doing a project or doing research on the use of, uh, I think it was in Haiti, yeah, it was in Haiti of uh, new media, of like having new technologies and that being used by American soldiers as mm-hmm. former tortures. Like you have radios and you have these little bits that have electricity and using that. It's really fascinating just how. Well, I teach a large course where we do slavery we do the Crusades, and we also do um, Rwandan genocide, and mm-hmm. of course the use of of, of the radio uh, for the Rwandan genocide is a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> horror of the modern world. Um, I do have to say that I'm really thrilled that uh, First Second is producing books like Dio Gradius, A Tale of Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So they do produce, you know, the the photographer by Gobert. Really, uh, stories of war. Uh, <laughs> we're not united uh, for it or against it, but it is a part of the drama of life. And then when events intercede, you, you, you tend to go back in your historical time period and try and put yourself on the ground and see what it was like. Well, that's something fascinating with Booth is where he wasn't really like he was doing some espionage you know supplies messages around but he didn't really seem to understand the horror of war no he saw it as um perhaps the drama of a stage play Mm -hmm. richard the third or henry the fifth he was someone who was familiar with war uh perhaps as a play 
at the same time, I found out that one of his um, friends, his school friends, was someone who lost family during a raid in Christiana. So there was in, in you know a famous uh, attack where slaveholders went in crossing the border, chasing fugitive slaves, and had a standoff. And John Wilkes Booth, from an early age, understood that there would be a violent confrontation between slaveholders and the vision of America they saw, and people fighting against slavery, which took place a generation earlier when he was a young boy. And so finding that he, he had this history uh, was quite interesting to me. When it, in in history and kind of interpreting history and looking at history, um, you read someone's accounts of an event, you know, a speech or something, um, and it's obviously through that person's lens that you're reading it through. You're not necessarily getting a complete take on what the events are, but you're kind of understanding the idea, the 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 analysis of the event. And I'm so I'm curious um, when you chose to do booth um what your specific choice was in creating or the vision that you were trying to create with him right well i did i did um have very good luck of working with a wonderful editor tanya mckinnon who was able to um keep me on track to try to balance things because sometimes I would get too deeply into historical detail, but a lot of the time I would get um, too far inside the the drama. That is, for example, uh, there is a love triangle in the Booth story, and uh, there is also an idea of John Wilkes Booth, in a way, justifying his own views. He was very narcissistic. As you point out, he didn't really uh, go to war. He he play-acted through war, and in some ways his assassination of Lincoln was this spectacular act where he, he was showing himself to be a true actor, a true hero, not no longer on the sidelines, but leaping you know, into the center stage, which he literally did mm-hmm. at at Ford's Theater um, <laughs> off the balcony uh, following sh- the shooting of Lincoln. But this idea that you get too far inside it uh, or inside your story is, is the one thing that I think happens to you. Also, of course, since I've been reading, writing, and thinking about the Civil War for more than two decades, um, you tend to put too much into the story. So I do think Booth is very densely filled with history, dialogue, bits and pieces, and that's something that I hope um, readers are willing to stick with, but I, I, I find it uh, worthwhile if you keep following the story and the dialogue that you will uh, get it in there. I found Tanny Talk quite inventive. At one point he has um, Booth and Ella, his um, his woman of the streets that he keeps company with, of, of ill repute. makes promises to, and he, he, they're discussing Lincoln quite, quite uh, in a sophisticated way, and yet at the same time they're rolling around in bed, which was not exactly my vision of that moment, but we're all <laughs> collaborators, and so he gets to draw the pictures, and I get to give them the words. 
So it wasn't very uh, extremely structured script? No, no, <laughs> because I think you have to give your your artist the free reign to... Uh, I gave several stage directions throughout, but certainly um, the way it was structured. And I was so impressed with the... Uh, with the color, so Hillary Sycamore did an amazing job, I think, of setting a mood through color in a way mm-hmm. that I hadn't anticipated. In my in my vision of the book, it was very uh, black and white, like some of the books I admire so much, very Persepolis, and yet this really brought it to life with the kinds of sepias and earth tones and making it really seem like you were in a historical moment through the color, through the vision. So um, at the same time, I admire the setting of mood, which I think is done through the drawings in color, which, which my words are there on the page, but they're in some ways transformed by the visuals. Mm-hmm. And that's the power, I think, of a great, of a great artist like Tani Tak.
Let's go remind folks. I'm talking to uh, C.C. Colbert, a.k.a. Uh, Catherine Clinton, about her uh, book for first, second, Booth, actor, lover, idealist, assassin. Um, the two names. Why the pseudonym for the comic? Well, I did take on the idea of doing a graphic novel at a time when I had established myself as an historian, as a biographer, um, that I had um, been elected to the um, various historical societies and served on boards and served on Pulitzer Prize juries. And when I was approached by Mark in um, the early days of the uh, 21st century, I couldn't look around and see graphic novels within the classroom in a way, or even um, taken very seriously by my scholarly colleagues. I think, um, you know, five or six years later, I can look and see that publishing and communications is moving at a rapid clip in many different directions, and I was interested in getting the excitement and intensity of history out to readers, Mm -hmm. getting the story out. And stories come in many forms, and I think that I was right at the time to take a gamble with this. And at the same time, uh, at the particular point when I was asked to go to contract and to, um, you know, do the shake, the handshake, I, I was not so firmly convinced that this particular project after all first second had not yet published any books <laughs> so it was a long time coming uh but well worth the wait and in fairness i had um three colberts at home uh two who'd done so much wonderful reading and so i thought it was a great idea to use a pseudonym interestingly of course that many other women writers in earlier centuries have used pseudonyms in order to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Some of the reviews talk about C.C. Colbert, he, and I find that quite charming, and, um, you know, talk about my ability to get inside Booth's psyche or his head or whatever matters, and so I, I consider that a compliment uh, from a reviewer. Myself, I wasn't too sure until uh, looking at the publisher's publicity sheet, which actually had your name on it. (laughs) Well, that's good. I think I've done a lot of writing, and I did do some early screenwriting where it was very gendered. Mm -hmm. And my idea was to take on, I've written major biographies of Fanny Kemble, a 19th century British woman abolitionist, on Harriet Tubman, the really incredible leader of the Underground Railroad, and Mrs. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife. So I've uh, done my work in women's history, and I thought that Booth would be a real challenge. But I guess when I was being uh, challenged in many dimensions in terms of the medium in which I was storytelling and in terms of where I was in terms of the academy, I wanted to wait. And it wasn't... um, something that I took lightly, because now I am very committed to looking at how we can and should be using every means possible to keep 
history accessible and exciting for readers of all ages. I concur. <laughs> um, what were some other... You mentioned some first, second books. You mentioned Persepolis. What were some other uh, comics you had read uh, previous um, that would kind of inform the work you were doing? Well, I, I, I did try and do some reading of some of the women artists, and luckily um, Jessica Abel's La Perdita, Persepolis, I found really moving. Uh, my good friend Thomas Labine has been doing some quite ambitious work, beginning with the book 9-11 and now a book on the Vietnam War. So I, I really was excited to see history in some ways coming alive. Of course, the great art of mouth gives one pause and, and gives one awe that uh, Spiegelman can take this, this powerful medium, I think, and make people really just take notice of it. In Europe, and in, in, in Asia, there is a long tradition of uh, comics, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, I think it's really quite different. I, I did, in my youth, look at some classic comics, but they were always of uh, fiction. Uncle Tom's Cabin or um, Shakespeare. And I think uh, the idea that people need to get stories in different ways. So I, I, I was thinking cinematically, I have to say, when I thought about Booth, that it was, in my mind, um, a screenplay that turned into a stage play that turned into a graphic novel in my head. Yeah. So I, I think um, it's safe to say that I was inspired by several different mediums and that books like From Hell and... Um, uh, the work of Megan Kelso and others that I was introduced to really made me think of uh, of what I was working on more artistically mm -hmm. rather than in terms of craft. It's always fascinating when you get an artist who uh, isn't necessarily immediately familiar with the surroundings that they're working with. Um, you know, you're the artist on this. I'm presuming French. I'm sorry, Tanitak is French. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. You know, uh, the Sergio Leone, um, you know. Well, movies. I think Mark Siegel has done yeah. an amazing job um, at first second of bringing these amazing artists um, to a wider readership through first second. I was just going to say, like, a lot of, like, the spaghetti westerns mean Italy. I mean, yeah. The, their interpretation of America, I mean, they have their interpretation of what they're doing in the West. Um, which is comp very different from way, you know, the Westerns see themselves, which gave them an odd form of more realism in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that step of being removed from it. Well, there is a strangeness that um, in order to get the power of your ideas across, um, the, the power, of course, would be the actual as you say, primary source documentation. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it's important to give your readers who are reading in a completely different era from their own some idea about the, the emotional tone of the period, the way in which um, people conducted themselves, in a sense, in affairs of honor. 
in keeping one's word, in being devoted to one's family, and the way in which John Wilkes Booth fit into all that let me really play with some themes in American history that I think are so important. The sense of nation, the sense of country, the sense of of honor, which is very much a part of the war, and um, the Civil War, most particularly. Again, we're coming up on the 150th, and many of these debates over the Civil War tend to linger.
it, it's really fascinating. You see um, just how the legacy of a lot of these ideas, and you touch on that when you're talking about uh, when you're young and your parents taking you to the Civil War sites and the right. display of pageantry, um, and just how these legacies have continued, um, and it's a completely different world now, but people are still tied to these basic primal um, ideas or notions. And when I am taking my students through ideas about the American Civil War, I'm struck by the fact that we have a annual internship program that we run. Our students just returned from three weeks in Gettysburg. And Gettysburg is one of those words you can say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and somehow it conjures up all kinds of images and all kinds of feelings in people. It's very international in its own way um, for people who are interested in war. And there's a wide range, I find, of... Uh, of readers that are intensely interested in war. But I have, since my um, earliest um, undergraduate days, been interested in the human side of war. Mm -hmm. And so the real flesh and blood consequences interest me a lot, but also, and also today, if we want to maintain divided societies, what does that do to a society? Can't we have commemorations that include peace, as well as war. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating talking about um, teaching the Civil War. You also mentioned the Crusades. Is the the true humanistic impact, or the the impact on people within those? I did a course on uh, the Crusades, and we had to take all these uh, descriptions of the first um, charge on uh, Jerusalem, and just kind of see the different points of view of the actions that happened there and just how devastating it was. Right. And just how violent. Well, I found, for example, that um, it was very moving to me that one of my... um, uh, I did drama as an undergraduate, and one of the people who did drama in my circle later went on to become a film director who's done a lot of great films and... uh, one of my favorites is Glory, mm-hmm. which is uh, Ed Zwick's, I think, one of his masterpieces. And when I'm trying to convey the meaning of war, I think taking them to a cinematic vision of it by someone like Ed Zwick is really quite powerful. And it conveys the drama of race and the drama of glory and the drama of death all in one, you know, real cinematic sweep. So, at the same time, I think um, in my own historical work, I spend a lot of time and energy trying to chronicle what I think are the inglorious aspects of Mm -hmm. war. Right now, I'm working on a major project on suicide in the American Civil War, something that there has not been much attention focused on, and in the 21st century, we're facing really quite terrible, awful aspects for world conflicts where the suicide of soldiers can sometimes exceed the combat deaths. Mm -hmm. So that's something I think the other consequences of war are something that I do think about uh, when I put on a different hat. (laughs) Well, it's a different hat, but 
in a way, I, I kind of see it, it's a big hat. You know? It's, well, uh, it's, uh, I, I do also think that history is something that you can study endlessly, and if you do it when you're young and you develop a real taste for it, it can stay with you the rest of your life and really bring you avenues and pleasures and conflict and, you know, how could this have happened and controversies. And I'm just, you know, it's an endless, I think, fascination for people. And at the same time, I have to say that I didn't really study history as an undergraduate um, because I was so interested in the human dimensions. But now in the 21st century, I think the the hat and the tents are big enough to include the graphic novel world, which mm-hmm. is exciting for me. Well, just as you said, you know, the historiography has changed. You know, there's a bit more of an understanding now than there was. That's true, but I have to be quite honest that if I went to any of the institutions that, where I got my degrees, like Princeton and Harvard, or mm-hmm. if I were teaching at Harvard again, I'm not so sure that... Uh, <laughs> I'd be uh, encouraging my doctoral candidates to uh, think up graphic novels. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's because, you know, I, I've also said to some of my younger colleagues who are writing their autobiographies that I think it's better to have a life before you actually write your autobiography. But <laughs> it's just a new trend. It's yeah. just a brand new trend. But it, at the same time, I think, you know, I have been really fascinated by the uh you know the r crumb stories of his life and how they've come to life so you know people people who are artists can put themselves out there and it can be very very moving it's a it's a balance between having something interesting to say and being able to say something interesting and maybe in some way i have to go back and say the the pop world of barbarella and uh, and wonder woman because um, I came of age in a time where creating um, female superheroes was an important step on the road to feminist equality, and maybe this was something important. I think. Mm. So uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm very admiring of um, my fellow authors who are out there putting out there um, heroines and complicated stories that I think are interesting. So in my book, there are, um, it is a war story, but if one were going to cast it, you would need um, two women who are very strong and conflicted and interesting. And I do have to say, um, I, I was happy to put them out there because although I'm a great fan of war stories and war films, and I like to study them. Some of my favorites are quite uh, dramatic in the conspicuous absence of females. Mm -hmm. There's a real interesting moment in the film Black Hawk Down, where there's a phone call, and you think you might actually hear the spoken word of a female, but it doesn't happen. So the silence of women... (laughs) In many of these, in many of these stories, is something that I I do have um, conceptual objections to because mm-hmm. a lot of my work has been bringing bringing the dead to life. You know, we are kind of forensic um, historians in many ways are 
are forensic storytellers trying to get at the heart of the matter and bring alive the dead past. And so I think in the 21st century, the graphic novel is a really great way of kick-starting people's interest in that past. It creates more of a an even playing field. Sure. Um, more egalitarian approach, maybe? And I think th- I was also very struck. I began to write uh, children's books in the 1990s because I saw that my two young children were so interested in the future and trying to get them hooked on the past. Well, of course, with a mother historian, why wouldn't they reject all things historic? But it was something that I really, you know, I myself, I I, I did comment on, on those um, being, I think, didn't I use the word dragged? I was dragged to those Civil War battlefields. Yeah. And, and uh, that's something my husband and I shared. His my, my dear, sweet father-in-law was a great fan of the Civil War, and he loved the Centennial, and he collected uh, things like the reproduction of Harper's Weekly that gave you the war week by week. And bless him, I inherited those. And yet I, I remember at the time thinking, why am I being dragged to this? And here I am. Here I am, a half century later, <laughs> fascinated by it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like, who knew that chocolate could be so good for you and red wine and all these things? But my, it's a good thing. And I'm very pleased to see also the, the transnational aspects of this, because in some ways the death of Lincoln is a very powerful symbol of the death of a dream, the death of a leader, the death of a symbol, and although the book is about Booth, Lincoln appears prominently on the cover, and the spirit of Lincoln, I think, is without the is, is throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And the idea that uh, that people would want to know about this first dramatic kind of international figure who was assassinated, a modern politician assassinated, is is, is something that I think will have appeal uh, across. That Canadian border, for sure, <laughs> but also, uh, we hope, across a wider playing field. Did you ever read the uh, Louis Riel comic by Chester Brown? No, and and in some ways I feel very guilty that I know I'm going to be quizzed, but you see, I'm <laughs> extremely devoted to my students, and you'll find me on planes reading student essays and uh, <laughs> doing my marking and... Uh, and sometimes, yes, it's true, I do uh, dip into the wonderful first, second books that I get sent. But uh, And I do, and I am going on a vacation this summer to France where they have entire bookstores, entire really? bookstores full of graphic novels. So, Well, I, I, I highly recommend it as a, uh, it's an interesting take on Louis Riel, um, and there is a lot of uh, interesting... Um, parallels between Louis and uh, and Sua Booth a little bit mm-hmm. just as far as life experience and I mean Louis has a far richer life experience um, or lengthier I should say maybe um, but it's interesting so I won't say too much because you haven't read it and I recommend reading it well uh, thank you for that it's uh, one of our Canadian uh, masters Chester Brown is uh, top of his game 
Well, I remember very distinctly being in a wonderful little town, St. Catharines in Canada, when I was working on my booth, uh, not on my booth, on my Harriet Tubman book, and finding a wonderful comic book store there. And they did have a copy of a comic book, a full run of uh, a short-lived run of a, uh, a counterfactual comic story called Captain Confederacy. <laughs> and I actually included uh, images of Captain Confederacy in one of my early historical works, which was about the South, the American South, and memory. And it's called Terra Revisited, Women, War, and the Plantation Legend. And I do remember having people caution me about putting in things like uh, Gone with the Wind fans and Captain Confederacy covers. But I, I really am fascinated by the, the pop aspects mm-hmm. of culture. Um, Booth was someone who did harbor not only murderous attitudes towards the president, but he was extremely racist in his views. And I did have, not trouble, but I did have some need to show, in some ways, that aspect of his character without demonizing him. Because being racist in 1850s Maryland is quite different from being racist in 1950s Maryland or in 2010s Maryland, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to give the fuller story and incorporating these issues of race and gender um, are need to be not heavy-handed but need to be infused into the story. We can't forget that Booth really did believe in the slave power and wanted slaveholders to rule and white supremacy to be the larger story. So in several of the encounters um, and I had so many to select from. I did try and show his uh, a fictional encounter with a black butler, but we do have incidents of of Booth being rather callous with African Americans in Washington, and then uh, a particular incident where he's abusive with a black family when he's on his. Um, 12 days on the run because Booth, after Booth assassinated Lincoln he eluded captivity for 12 days mm-hmm. and I, I of course could have taken another 100 pages to tell the story of the kind of rumors and myths about Booth there was stories that he had um, I- I escaped the Union soldiers and had been hidden and I was so fascinated by the story of his body and what happened with his body. So that is a fairly accurate, uh, verified segment of the book because the Union government, the restored federal government, felt that they could not release Booth's body because he might become a martyr. Mm -hmm. And his grave would become a place of hero worship. So he lived in the basement, buried under the floorboards at an arsenal in Washington for many years because the Secretary of War said, I, I, you know, it's apocryphal. He never really said over my dead body, but 
the year Booth's body was released to his parents, um, or released to his family, um, was the year that Stanton died. So there are real honor and complicated issues about the legacy of the Civil War and race issues. Um, so I hope I could at least convey a little tip of the iceberg of those complexities and maybe get people to read more and maybe in, inspire some of my fellow artists and uh, writers to take on these really amazing Civil War stories. I'm, I noticed uh, Julius Caesar plays a big role as kind of an uh, underlying story within it. Absolutely. Uh, I noticed the the black servant in the senator's household name was Cato. Right. You know, one of the, uh, was he one of the conspirators? Sure, yes. Thank you for catching that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the... Uh, well, know. and then they, they did appear. The Booth brothers appearing on stage at Madison Square Garden was a sensation. Mm-hmm. Now, I do fictionalize the cause, because in my book, Booth, I imagine that they reunite for a benefit for the Sanitary Commission. And the U.S. Sanitary Commission did hold several large benefits. But in reality, the Booth brothers came together to raise money for a a statue of Shakespeare, which was erected and is still in Central Park today. Is that the one on that walk with all the... uh the famous authors? Yes, we have a Shakespeare statue, which was, you know, interestingly, money was raised by John Wilkes Booth and Edwin Booth and Junius Booth appearing together in Julius Caesar during the war. Who played who? Um, oh, now you've got me, Junius. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the picture in my head, and I'm saying, uh, of course Booth had to play Brutus. Um, but but in the book, I, I tell a very straightforward melodramatic night. It was a melodramatic night in that Edwin Booth had indeed given up the stage. Mm-hmm. And during the war, John Wilkes's star was on the rise, and he became the premier actor who was inheriting the mantle from his father, um, the elder Junius Booth. And Junius Jr. was not as spectacular an actor as Edwin. But Edwin had been quite a drinker. His wife's death while he was on the road affected him so deeply that he gave up the stage. But he went back on the stage in order to do this benefit. And then he returned to the stage, and his star outshone his brother John. So I was able to introduce the element of intense, deep sibling rivalry, which there was between the Booth brothers. And, of course, it's exaggerated by the fact that once Edwin began to return to wear the mantle of his father, being the greatest actor of his generation, then John Wilkes Booth became more and more jealous. And I suggest that it pushed him into more and more reckless activity, which included being part of a spy ring that we know for many weeks and months plotted to kidnap Lincoln. Mm Mm-hmm. And then with the surrender, Lee's surrender, the plot accelerated during that last week of Lincoln's life to the murder of Lincoln in a theater with him shouting 
Six Semper Tyrannis, and you know, which is of course Latin, coming up the, <laughs> coming you know, the, the, the Shakespearean <laughs> drama. Um, so I was just very struck, and also, uh, what a Shakespearean life in that John Wilkes Booth grew up in an idyllic setting among his family on a Maryland farm, and then one day a woman shows up with a young boy, and it turns out his father was a bigamist. He'd never, ever <laughs> divorced his wife in England. He'd run away with a, with a fellow actress and come to America and had his family, and it turned out at the age of 10 or 11, John Wilkes Booth had to face the name-calling of being a bastard. And so I just thought there were such great elements here of human drama that, uh, in the Shakespearean angle, uh, was one that I did try to exploit. Well, you start out with uh, Henry V. Yes. So it's, uh, that he's a little boy playing in a tree, <laughs> reciting his Henry V. <laughs> but we know he did do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, what you were exposed to at the time too. Like for our, for right. then, it's not so unusual. To, to have that if you're literate um, where now we have uh, a lot more pop culture terms that we regurgitate ad nauseum. <laughs> and I am so admiring, I must say, of um, of um, Edwin Booth who, who, who had to suffer being the greatest actor of his generation one day, the next day he has to be held in custody for his own safety and the Booth name was something that he had to wear as a badge ever after. He was active in New York circles in the Players Club, and his his great, incredible run as Hamlet, he, was, he had the longest playing Hamlet in history at the time, was something that um, went to the sidebar of being the brother of John Wilkes Booth. So in some ways, I was trying to give Edwin's story some equal play. You can go to the the um, Players Club in New York and see the rooms that he inhabited, and you have a real sense of 19th century theater um, through Edwin Booth's life. I remember going to New York and going into this uh, old pub, McSorley's, Mm-hmm. They, they had a John Wilkes Booth wanted poster in there. Sure. So I think we've all seen these kind of images, and mm-hmm. Tanny Talk, of course, inserts them in there, so you get a real sense of of manhunt. And as I say in my in my afterward, I was so lucky that James Swanson was um, putting out his book Manhunt, and uh, and my friend Michael Kaufman was also putting out a book, American Brutus, and my great friend, Terry Alford, is working on a wonderful new biography of John Wilkes Booth. So we're in exciting times for being able to create his life, and I just felt very lucky to have all that wonderful new material to, to in a way, um, concoct uh, a new insight into this fascinating character. And then... Um, hope that my children's children will be interested in it. Well, As an historian, that's what we like to imagine. Comics make a good way of getting into it. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, Catherine. Well, thank you, Ingstads, and thank you for your insights as a history 
buff. I really appreciated that extra bonus. <laughs>